Well, today we're just going to be focusing on one line within the creed. And that line, if I can get the next slide, is the third day he arose again from the dead. Over the last nine years, uh, I've preached uh, every Easter, and, and on Easter, uh, we spend time talking about the resurrection. And I, I've kind of going through all the messages that I've given on the resurrection, and I found that myself just reading through uh, the things that God had put on my heart, the things that I'd read and studied, the conversations that I'd had with other pastors and other believers about the significance of the resurrection, I found that, that this is so important for us in regards to our own devotional life. Because the resurrection of Christ is key to us understanding his life and death, and, and also understanding that his life and death uh, is, is that his perfect life qualified him for the death that he died, but the perfection of his life meant that death could not keep him. And that his resurrection uh, is that our resurrection, our hope that death is not all that there is, is directly connected to his resurrection as the firstborn over a new creation. And so what I want us to do today is to just consider the significance of the resurrection of Christ. Because what does it tell us in Romans chapter 10 in regards to salvation? It says that whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead shall be saved. It's a very simple but very profound statement. I believe a statement that actually contains within it the entire gospel proclamation. For to say Jesus is Lord is to say that I am not. But he couldn't be Lord if he was still dead. The fact that he rose again means that death is now behind him. And because of that, we can trust him with our lives because we do not worship a God who is distant or detached, but the living Christ who is present and with us, who will never leave us nor forsake us. I want to begin by reading this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now I would remain, remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I have delivered to you as the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures." There's a poem by uh, my favorite writer from Argentina. His name is Borges. Uh, and there's a, a collection of his poetry. He's actually an amazing poet. As, as, uh, I think he's an even better fiction writer. Uh, but there was one poem that he wrote entitled Christ on the Cross. And in the last stanza of this poem, he said this. He says, he has left us some splendid metaphors and a doctrine of forgiveness that can do away with the past. The soul searches for its end Hurriedly, night has fallen. He has died now. A fly crawls over the still flesh. Of what use is it to me that this man has suffered if I am suffering now? It's a very dark, it's a very dark statement. It shows that Borges did not have a saving faith in the life of Jesus. He was very familiar with the Gospels. He was very familiar with the teaching of Christ. He saw the significance of his teachings, but he said, how could they actually bring any difference to my life in the midst of my suffering if he's dead? And that's essentially what he's insinuating is that he never rose from the dead. How could we possibly believe that? 
But the poem paints for us the absolute necessity because Borges was right. If Jesus Christ was dead and remained in the grave, he could not bring forgiveness of sins and he could bring no hope in the midst of our suffering because suffering is an experience that none of us can escape. To be human is to suffer. It's not all that life is, but it is an inescapable component of life. And I think, in fact, if we interpret the life and death of Jesus, uh, we have to do it by the fact of his resurrection. For 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14 goes on to say, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I was thinking about the fact of how the gospel exploded in the first century. And the primary reason that we call it the Jerusalem factor is how, how did the gospel uh, move so quickly? How, how did, why, actually, even a better question, why would these guys, if they had nothing to gain from the proclamation of the gospel, that is that Jesus Christ, this carpenter from Nazareth, this teacher, this itinerant teacher who was crucified as a common thief, if they went around telling people that he rose from the dead, what were they trying to gain from that statement? But the Jerusalem factor is this, is that the only thing that would have compelled them to preach such a thing is if they had actually seen Jesus Christ risen. And it was the belief that, that Jesus Christ was risen, that they had seen him, that they had spent time with him, that actually gave validity and power. Uh, as we all know, uh, it didn't end there for the, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but what did the Spirit empower them to preach? That Jesus Christ was crucified for the sins of the world and that on the third day he rose from the dead and that they were eyewitnesses to that fact. The Spirit empowered them to, to express with great articulation what it is that they had personally experienced. And the gospel went forth. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17 says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If he is not alive, we are still dead in our brokenness and our message is meaningless. If Jesus is not alive, if Jesus is not present, for what did Jesus say? When two or more gather in my name, I am there in the midst of them that we need to recognize that the importance of clinging tightly to the resurrection is the, is the essence of our hope. For we worship the living Christ who actually comes to dwell within us by his spirit and, and, and puts within us a hope that one day we too will receive that resurrection life that is directly connected to his resurrection. If he stayed in the grave, why would we have any hope that we would escape it? And none of us want to just walk around as disembodied spirits, but the idea of having resurrection bodies experiencing a new heaven and a new earth, which is the hope of the scriptures, uh, should be anchored into, into our expectancy because it's what drives us through the dark days in which we live and gives us the ability to push through and to maintain faithfulness to a king who conquered death. I love this. The resurrection is what gives meaning to life and the death of Jesus, meaning to the life and the death of Jesus. For by it, the cross was proved to be much more than just a tragic death and the life of Jesus became much more than just simply our example. It becomes the living illustration. 
So I want to just consider three things today around the resurrection of Jesus. And the first thing I want us to consider is this, is that the resurrection is the central and supreme declaration of God's full acceptance of the perfect work of Christ. Let me just restate that, that the resurrection is the central and supreme declaration of God's full acceptance of the perfect work of Jesus. It is the Father's final stamp of approval upon the finished work of Jesus. It's the Father's stamp of approval upon the perfections of the Son. And how is the resurrection the central and supreme declaration of God's full acceptance of the perfect work of Christ? Well, it points us to the perfection of his life as a man. I think this is important for us to understand that Jesus had to fulfill the law in order to free us from the law. His death, if he had stayed in the grave, would have spoken to us that he did not free us from the bondage and the curse of the law, but that his death and resurrection actually speaks to him maintaining and fulfilling that which none of us could. Hebrews chapter four, verse 15 speaks of this very thing. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. I always say that the life that Christ lived qualified him for the death that he died, but the death that he died now because of his resurrection qualifies us for the life that he lived. And what that means is that Jesus entered into the brokenness of human existence and he took that brokenness into himself as we considered last week. And he did that. He took sinful flesh upon himself into his existence without sinning. He even said to his disciples in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I did not come to destroy the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. But the law for us is a curse because the law could not save. Because what is the law? The law is essentially a plumb line from heaven. And what does a plumb line from heaven, what does a plumb line do for a carpenter? All it does is reveal the crookedness of the wall. It does not correct the wall if the wall is not straight. And so... For us, I mean, it's the same. I heard another illustration of, of what the law, the law does for us and, and why it's incapable of saving. He said the law is like an x-ray. All the law, the law can show, all the x-ray shows is if the bone is, bone is broken or not. It doesn't fix the bone. And I think that Jesus alone is able to enter into the life that we were intended to live. He became the new Adam, the second Adam. He becomes the representative human uh, that God, he becomes the one for the many. It is in him that redemption for mankind is made possible because he lived the life that God intended us to live that we could not live. And his resurrection is the father's stamp of approval upon that reality. My son is the one in whom I am well pleased. This is the entrance into life. It doesn't just speak of the perfection of his life as, as the man Jesus, but it also speaks of the perfection of his mediation as the Savior Jesus. For in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be what? Saved by his life. That it would be one thing for Jesus to live the perfect life that we that we couldn't live and to die on the cross. But if he did not rise from the grave, all that would happen is that we would be doubly damned. For now, someone has actually lived the life that we couldn't live, but does not have the power to actually instill within us that same life. 
because we all know that we are not capable of, of being the people that we want to be. There is always this, this coming up short reality in our existence. This, the older I get, uh, you know, I, I hate this. They use this term uh, as you get older that eventually, once you hit midlife, you hit what they call a ceiling. It's that, and that ceiling is what creates for many people the idea of the midlife crisis is that you, when you're young, you think you can do anything, you think you can do anything, you keep, you keep going, you keep going, uh, and then you have, at this point, you, you, you are confronted with your limitations. You're confronted with a body that begins the downward slope, which is really, really unfortunate. I really thought that I had at least 10 more years before that happened, and you know, 40 was just faithful. It's like the Lord, it's like the Lord just told me, you're halfway let us begin the downward journey. <laughs> Learn to be the wise fool. <laughs> so, but but that, that, limitation, uh, that, that limitation, those limitations are there when you're young too. We just don't believe them until we're older. Then we get halfway through our life and we're like, I haven't accomplished all that I wanted to accomplish. Or even I accomplished more than I thought I would, but I still am not happy because there still seems to be things that are fundamentally broken in my life. I still struggle with with a lack of faithfulness. I still struggle with anger. I still struggle with depression. I still let people down. I'm still this and that. I mean, I could create a, a mile-long list of all the ways that I feel that I fail each and every day. It's like I wake up and even laying in bed before I get out of bed to get dressed, I'm already sinning. I'm already falling short. I'm already fundamentally broken. The Father's stamp of approval upon the Son's existence, that's what the resurrection is, and that's good news for us. Because what the Father is approving is that the Son's ability to live the life that you and I could not live. That He actually passed through our limitations. He even took our limitations into Himself and took them to their bitter end. I always say that we can say that Jesus understands our sin because He took sin into Himself without sinning and actually was able to take it all the way into the depths. He entered all the way into the depths of human hell and existence. And he did that without collapsing. He actually completed the journey. For death could not keep him because of his perfect life. He, because of that, we can trust him. It is alone by his life that we are saved. I, and I am grateful that I am not responsible to save my own life because I couldn't save myself if I tried. Amen. If I could just share too, what if someone, if someone's a counselor in here, I had this dream the other night that uh, I, I just, really, this was puzzling. Darcy's like, you need to unpack that. I'm like, maybe I'll unpack it with the church. Uh, I had, I, I think this was a, a revelation of midlife limitations of the imperfections. So it's really horrible, but I, I, was, I was like in a castle-like building with all these men and women and children, and, and we were getting ready to be invaded, and I was handed a rifle to hold off all of these, these, this, this enemy. I don't even know what the enemy was. And all of a sudden, people started shooting out of the trees into the fortress, and people were dying around me, and, and, and it was snowy outside, and I was like, and, and these people were dying around me, and I'm like, no way. And I just bolted out the back door and I, and I buried myself in the snow until all the fighting was done. And then I got up. And then the whole dream was just me being really, really ashamed that I made it with a few handful of people. And they're like, thank you so much for defending us. And all the while I knew that I had not defended. See, we, what does that mean? <laughs> all that means is you don't want to be in battle with me, I guess. 
<laughs> that I am self-referential to the bitter end, I guess. I, I was so ashamed of it. But I, I think it speaks. Even my dreams, I'm reminded of my limitations, of my shortcomings, of my failings. But no, the resurrection is, central in, in this, is the central and supreme declaration of God's full acceptance of the perfect work and life and death of Jesus Christ. And we can take those bad dreams and lay it at the foot of the cross. <laughs> I'm not going to share that at second service. I just need to get off my chest once and then move forward. <laughs> it speaks also uh, of his perfection, uh, the perfection of his victory as king. For what are we told about his death? We considered this last week that I believe that the statement that he descended into hell is actually a statement of victory, that Jesus on the cross actually conquered death and sin in the dominions of darkness, that his descent into hell is saying that he did something more than just simply die, that he actually conquered death, that he triumphed over death, that he came to set the captives free, and that is exactly what he did and what he continues to do today. So the resurrection is a reminder that Jesus indeed is victorious. He is the king. And this is why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, and Paul's beautiful uh, overview of the resurrection and how important it is to us as a central doctrine for the believer is that death itself has been swallowed up in victory. I, I think that this is a statement that you should just kind of write in your hearts and minds, that he is risen means that he lives with death behind him. It'd be a good reason to abide in him. Because if death lies behind him, then we can believe him when he says, I have come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. So the resurrection is the central and supreme declaration of God's full acceptance of the perfect work of Jesus. And his perfection is seen in his life, it's seen in his mediation, it's seen in his victory. And this is why it's an important doctrine for us, because death has been swallowed up in victory. So, number two, the resurrection of the perfect man Jesus reveals also the condemnation of the imperfect. The emergence of Jesus from death into life is set before us as God's declaration that Jesus is now and forever the standard of human existence. That's really important for us to get. That the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and that that resurrection is the Father's stamp of approval upon his life, his death, and his victory over sin and the dominions of darkness and the devil and the world and death itself. That stamp of approval means that now Jesus is the standard bearer of what human existence should be about, what it should be like. And what that tells us, knowing our own limitations, knowing that the line of sin runs through all of us, that Jesus died for both the victim and the victimizer, and you and I will experience both of those roles at some point in our lives. This is important because this reminds us that Jesus is the standard by which the Father's acceptance is found, and therefore we are found, we are accepted when we are found in Him. Romans 3:23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what that tells us is that the life of Jesus, Jesus did not fall short. He was perfect. And all of us have fallen short. The Father's stamp of approval upon the life of Christ stands as a condemnation against all of our imperfect ways. Jesus, remember, was both the judge and the judged on our behalf. 
that the wrath of God was appeased through his sacrifice. The judgment and the wrath that we deserve. And what did we, we told about the wrath of God being played out in human existence right now? Romans 1 says this is how the wrath of God is played out until the final judgment. And it's not all that, there, that the scripture has to say about God's wrath. But it says that, that the wrath of God has, has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And then it goes on to say, God therefore gave them up. He gave them over. One of the ways we can see the wrath of God being played out in human existence today is God giving people over to their, their godlessness. God giving them over. You don't want me? Fine. You be your own God and see how that works out for you. And we see the destruction and the, the damage that we are capable of doing to one another. We see the anger and, and the polarization in our country that all of it comes back to, honestly, it just comes back to one word, a word that we need to cling to tightly as Christians because I, I think it's a word that its meaning is being lost in, in contemporary society and that word is sin. Amen. That we have fallen short, that we are broken, that we have rebelled against God's sovereign rule and that we have rejected his grace. And Jesus' resurrection is a way for the Father saying, this is the life that I accept. And I accept all who are found in my Son. Praise God. And this is why Jesus, we're told that the Father is reconciling the world to himself through his Son, through that life. Flannery O'Connor, I've used this illustration before, and I, I love this book. Have you ever read the book Wise Blood? It's an amazing novel, one of my favorite novels of the 20th century. But she explores this idea in her novel. Uh, the main character, Hazel Motes, um, obsessively tries to remove from himself the reality of Jesus. And at one point he says, the only thing that matters is that Jesus don't exist. He tells people in the town he's starting a new church called the Church of Truth Without Christ Crucified. At another point he declares, I am clean, but if Jesus existed, I am not clean. And so Hazel's vision, how do I get rid of human guilt? How do I get rid of the guilt and the shame that I feel? How do I escape my own brokenness? The only way I can do that is to eradicate the one whose perfect life makes me feel guilty. If I can get rid of Jesus, instead of seeing Jesus as the means to his salvation, he actually sees Jesus as the one who continually stands as the standard that he cannot keep up with. But let me just remind you, as Flannery being a devout Catholic, she was playing on this, on this vision of, of modern society's attempts of ridding itself of a moral God. And she was asked, she's actually asked once why her novels were so grotesque. Her stories, there's not a, ever a pleasant character in any of her stories. They're, they're, they're kind of painful to read. They're like comic in a grotesque way. And they always take place in the South. And, and they always have these deep religious themes. And they're always marked by a lot of violence and darkness and corruption. And she said, the reason that I draw my character so grotesquely is that we as a society have lost our concept of sin, that the only way that I can get people to recognize their own brokenness is to exaggerate the characters, to draw with broad strokes so that people might actually see the reality of what's going on in their hearts. She's brilliant. But what this tells us is that the resurrection has no message for the person who is attempting in their own energy to please God. 
God says of his only son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And his pleasure over our, he loves us. Just remember that God's wrath, God doesn't hate us. He doesn't hate those who are outside of Jesus. His wrath is a hatred of what robs him of what he loves, which is his humanity. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, that the spirit comes to draw people to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit has come to draw you into the love of God. God's love for you, as it's been wisely said, that a person can die unsaved, but no one can ever say they died unloved. The God's love for you is so immense that Jesus was willing to enter in to the brokenness of your human existence, that Jesus was willing to actually take that brokenness into himself in a profound way, that he was actually able to take it all the way to the end. And his resurrection tells us that he conquered sin and death and the devil. And therefore, our existence is found in him. It's just, we can't disconnect ourselves from Jesus. This is the point of this. The resurrection of the perfect man, Jesus reveals the condemnation of the imperfect. And that is the fact. And so what God calls us to, he sends his son because we all are imperfect, because we've all fallen short of the glory of God, because he loves us and it enrages him to see the way that sin destroys the very thing that he loves, which is human lives. So John 14, verse six, gives us the very vision. The resurrected king, before his crucifixion, said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. Amen. Jesus is the way, the only way. He is the truth. All truth abides in him. He is truth personified, and he is the life. It says that we were once dead in our sins and trespasses. Do you remember what that was like? I do. Number three, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead makes possible the communication of his life. Why is this statement within the creed so important? On the third day, he was raised from the dead. Because in the resurrection, God not only accepted Jesus as the perfect man, but he also accepted him as our representative. We are all stuck in this place of imperfection, of limitation, of brokenness. But the perfection of Jesus was not to set a standard that we can't keep, but the the perfection of Jesus was to pave a way for us to be saved, to experience the newness of life. In the resurrection, Jesus is accepted by the Father as our representative. And this is why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so all in Christ shall be made alive. The forgiveness of sins required not only his death, but it demanded his resurrection. For if he died and did not raise from the dead, we would still be dead in our sins. How could a dead Christ give life and life abundance? That is what Borges asked. Of what use is it to me that this man has suffered if I am suffering now? What did Jesus say in John chapter 10, verse 10? He says, I came that they may have life and they may have it abundantly. Only a living Christ can offer us life. John 14, 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Have you put your faith in the one who gives life and gives it abundantly? He, we're even told that the enemy comes like a thief 
to steal and to kill and to destroy, but that he has come to give us life and to give it abundantly. And through the cross is the key. He, he wouldn't need to be resurrected. And just keep in mind that resurrection is not resuscitation. It's something altogether new. If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. And the resurrection body of Christ actually even gives us glimpses in, uh, in, into a vision of what is yet to come. For the, for the resurrected body of Christ was physical, and yet it broke the boundaries of, of, of normal laws because I believe that the resurrection uh, the resurrected body of Christ gives us a vision of the kind of bodies that we will have in the new kingdom, in the new heaven, the new earth. But I believe that the power of this is that his resurrection speaks to the fact that he says, it is good that I go to my father, for if I go to my father, I will send to you another helper. And that the very, the very spirit of Christ now comes to dwell in those who place their faith in him, that we can be filled and fueled with the very life of Christ himself. This is why it says in Revelations chapter 1, verse 17 through 18, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. He is the conqueror. So what's the proof? An empty tomb or a full life? And there's a tomb right now uh, that you can go to that it claims to be the tomb of, of that Jesus' body was buried, but there's a lot of, probably wasn't the actual place where he was buried. But that's not the proof of the resurrection of Jesus. The greatest evidence that Jesus is alive is the fact that the gospel for the last 2,000 years, people have heard it, accepted it, and been empowered and lived by it. This has really always been the greatest proof of the authenticity of the resurrection. The final proof has always been in the living experience of the Christian soul. This is why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4-5, through five, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The life of Christ imparted to us as we live in faith and obedience to Jesus, we make him known by the power of his Holy Spirit. This is what his resurrection life is all about. And this is why it says in Romans chapter 10, verse nine, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You guys, this is the gospel. We worship and serve a risen king. And because he's risen, death's, death is behind him. And this is why Jesus says, abide in me. Because when we abide in him, his saving life begins to empower us to live differently. And we become the conduits by which we make the resurrected Christ known. We declare that Jesus died for the sins of the world, but we also declare that death could not keep him, for on the third day, he rose again. Do you believe that in the depth of your being today? Then may we as a people confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. Amen?